Hi there, and welcome to the Storymakers Institute, your front row pass to the world's most intriguing storytellers. And this week, say hello to Palestinian peace builder, National Geographic explorer, author, co-founder of Mejdi Tours, and TED Fellow, Aziz Abusara. These past few weeks have seen the temperature rapidly rise in the conflict and war between Israel and Hamas. In this episode of the Storymakers Institute, Aziz and I sit down to reflect on how this conflict is being told. We explore the personal responsibilities as observers of war and unpack how these perceptions and truths will shape the direction that this conflict takes next. Unlock full episodes of the podcast, deep dive into the show archive and set up your own private podcast feed so you can hear every full-length episode wherever you get your podcasts. It's all super simple. Head to Substack to set it all up, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com forward slash subscribe. Gift subscriptions are also available. This is Abusara. Welcome to the Storymakers Institute. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd love to start off with this question. How have you most effectively seen story being used in conflict situations? People in conflict often go very quickly to being tribal, being focused on my own pain, my own suffering, and they shut down to anything that is different from what they experience. And it's understandable. It's understandable that you feel your pain more than you feel the pain of others. Um, But also people looking in the outside seem to make similar decisions where uh, I'm going to pick who's the winner and who the loser is. And I'm not, I'm going to pick which news and what stories I get to hear. And that's what gets into your questions. What are the stories we are listening to today? And are we allowing ourselves um, to feel uh, for, for people, to feel for the humanity of, of the people who are dying? And what I've found is often we have this politics of who should we mourn and who should we feel bad for and who we shouldn't. And so the role of storytelling is, is to challenge that, is to make every life matters is to make everybody matters. Uh, there's an amazing poet uh, who's also a conflict resolution peacemaker in, uh, in Ireland, uh, Patrick Atuma, and he has this beautiful poem about learning. And he says, when I was a child, I used to count one, two, three, four, five. But now I learned to count one life, one life, one life, one life, because each time that that life has been taken, you know, it, it matters. I probably screwed up the poem a little bit. But, but the point is, yes, stories of people are the most powerful thing that we can share in conflict zones. Because me and you might argue about who's wrong and who's right and who started and who didn't. But one thing we cannot really argue about without completely going berserk is the stories, is the stories of a child, is a a story of a woman, is a story of a family, is a story of what people are going through. That's what reaches our hearts. And yet, if you look, whether online, Facebook, Twitter, or even in media, either they pick one side of a story or they don't tell you the story of the people. So there are numbers. These are 
Um, actually, also Badger Kutuma calls it, these are legitimate targets or not. That's all we talk about. And that's, that's just a mistake. And have you observed that different parts of the world are talking about this in different ways based on the relationships between the countries? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, if you watch the news, if you watch CNN or Fox News in the States versus, for example, watching a an Arabic station in Egypt or in Jordan, it's like you're talking about totally different regions in the world. It's You can't believe it's a coverage of the same place. And then when you talk to somebody from these countries, you realize that we are we're not anymore really informed. We are often indoctrinated. Um, and, and I find a lot of us are not interested in learning or if, if you get a challenge of what you think, it's, it's, oh, you must be against me right away. And it gets very personal. And, and again, that take us back to when we do stories, that's less likely to happen because you can't really challenge a story in the same way you challenge a position. If you tell me your position in Israel and Palestine, I can argue with you. But if you tell me a story of someone, if you tell me your story, a story you heard, a story of a person, it's much harder for me to argue and it dehumanizes that person. And yet so much of the conversation globally, certainly at the moment, is this sense of sort of tactics and politics and 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 the sort of mm, the the doom watching of of this particular um moment in time and and perhaps the sort of almost the baiting of some inevitability that this is going to kind of expand bigger than what it currently is yeah and it could and honestly when you look at different conflicts around the world you realize in so many places these conflicts could have been averted these wars could have been averted atrocities could have been stopped and it's simple things that have made it stop or not. And it's simple decisions. It's the, the way people have uh, decided to support or not support a war or not. It, it's really, it's not like a big, crazy kind of conspiracy of all these people figuring it out. It, it's much simpler than we think. And what happens to us often in in these situations, we are we fall into the the tide and we'll regret it later. Like I'm thinking of the war in Iraq, for example. Most Americans today would tell you that was a mistake. But during that war, everyone was so excited. Everyone's like, yeah, war, it is 100% justified. The thing is, every war feels justified at the moment of everyone gets adrenaline of it. And slowly, we are mobilized to become part of this anger, this hate, this wanting more damage, wanting justice. And, you know, the line between justice and revenge it is a very, very thin line. And people might think they want justice when in reality what they're looking for is revenge. And so we, we all become part of it. We're consuming so much around us, media, social media, so on. And it gets us an adrenaline of, yeah, let's get, the, we want the next thing to happen. In, in, in my experience, I remember once uh, hearing uh, 
one of the fathers of, of the conflict resolution world. And he was asked about uh, Jean-Paul Ledrec, and he was asked about his work in some countries where intractable conflicts were so serious and that he felt unable in some ways to make a difference in the moment. And he was asked, what should we do to challenge this reality, to challenge this excitement of like, let's just go kill everyone kind of thing. Let's hurt them. We want them. They deserve it. And his answer was was incredible. His answer says, when you feel you don't have any power anymore, you feel you've got no more tools, then the only thing you still have are the stories that you can tell. And the stories about those people, the stories that can give somebody hope, the stories can then challenge all this you know, crazy information that's trying to mobilize you to become an enemy of somebody else. Those, that, that's the one thing we have to defend ourselves with, it stories. Mm-hmm. I've written down three words, uh, central nervous system on a piece of paper uh, as you were talking, um, because there's sort of something, an aspect, there's this internal process that's happening in everyone who is witnessing and everyone who is part of this particular conflict you're right it's it's hard it's you have to realize in some ways that everything you're watching is competing for your decision for your emotions and recruiting you when you're watching the news in some ways you are being recruited and in, in nowadays in news, you're being recruited to a certain opinion, to a certain view. You're not giving information and being told, well, think about this critically. Honestly, very few media outlets, I would argue, are doing that. When we go to social media, we are on echo chambers. I mean, most of my friends, uh, even the, the ones who are very open and knowledgeable, have made themselves into this circle of I, I don't want to hear right now anybody I disagree with. And so everything is challenging you toward toward a certain idea, a certain position. Um, what I, I'll tell you what I do. I, I try my best. Um, you know, when I see something going on in Gaza and I see a child whose family were killed or I see... Uh, a family that complete like I know I know people who've lost who's lost like six seven people in their family, uh, and I want to hear them and I want to hear their pain and I I want to get angry as well. But in the same time, I don't shut myself from feeling the pain of another friend of mine who has his cousin is taken and hostage in Gaza. He's Israeli, uh, and it is hard to have this duality of pain to allow yourself to feel both. And we have to understand feeling pain of both doesn't necessarily agree with a certain political view. I still think a ceasefire is is important. I think this war needs to stop, but it doesn't make me only listen to the Palestinians' pain. And the reason for that, I think we have fallen for this this big mistake of having to almost check the color, the nationality, the religion, and the ethnicity of people before we decide if we can feel their pain or not, before we decide if we're sympathetic to them or not. And we do that 
directly or not. Like we do it because by not hearing their stories. So if I don't know their stories, they remain numbers. If I if I block anybody who tells me something that would challenge me, then that makes it easier. And I refuse to do that. I would argue, unfortunately, my the way I'm trying to process it isn't that popular right now. It hopefully will be eventually soon, but right now it's uh, it's a minority. Yeah, it's a minority of people who are willing to put their hearts out and say, I'm against any civilian being killed. I'm against anyone being killed. I'm against revenge, regardless of from who. I don't want no Israeli, no Jewish, and no Palestinian. And at the same time, being able to say, yeah, I, I think this war is, is wrong. This war needs to stop. And you can do all of these together. And even for people who want, I, I would argue, especially people who support the war, need to be willing to see the cost of it. If you support something, then don't shut your eyes and say, I don't wanna hear the human cost. Even if you think it's needed, which I think is absurd and it's wrong, but even if you're there, allow yourself to see the results of that war. Don't hide from it. Don't hide from the stories of, of the orphans who are there because every decision we make today not only in Israel and Palestine, any conflict will eventually decide so many things in our lives for the next decade. I, I can tell you from studying other conflicts, things that happened 10 years ago affects how me and you live today, affects violence in different countries today. No place is isolated. What happens in Israel and Palestine is going to affect you in Australia, it's going to affect me in anywhere, and it's going to affect the US, it's going to affect Europe, it's going to radicalize some people, it's going to lead, not a justification, but it's going to lead to a lot more violence. So we have to be aware that making decisions only based on this is our gut feeling, it's such a mistake. You've been a, a a peacemaker across the world in in Northern Ireland, Afghanistan, Iraq, South America. How have you seen, or have you employed story in a way that lessens a conflict situation like this? Yeah, uh, I mean, in many ways. Abs- first, absolutely, I think stories are are the essence of conflict resolution is communication. And the best aspect of communication is storytelling because it makes people listen and hear. Um, but also it's learning how to tell someone who you might perceive on the other side, not just what you want to tell them, but say it in a way that they're able to hear it. Uh, so it's not only just me getting everything out of my heart, which is often is the case, and then they get mad and nothing happened but rather say it in a way that they might actually reflect on it. They might actually listen to what I'm trying to say. So it's those nuances of how we communicate with each other, how we tell each other what we really think without destroying everything in the, in the way. Um, so there are different ways to do that. One way I've employed it is actually through the, the travel, uh, the travel program, uh, Mejdi tours that I set up with my Jewish partner, uh, Scott Cooper, 
where we bring uh, in different parts of the world, like Northern Ireland, bring a Catholic and a Protestant, people who are involved in the conflict, people who often fought directly against each other and have them co-guide a tour together. Um, the last tour I was on had a former, uh, a former IRA fighter who had uh, an uncle killed in Bloody Sunday and had a a loyalist who fought against uh, against her. They lived in the same city and was in prison for five years for a bombing that he was behind. So, and we have them co-lead a trip together, and it becomes easier for people to hear. You see these two people coming from totally different backgrounds, telling their stories, explaining where they're coming from, and you see how. As they tell their stories, they actually have become friends because they have so much in common. They understand where they came from. Um, and then you meet many others who still not where they are. And you see the whole process. What makes somebody so entrenched versus why some people has transformed? And you get to watch that through a week or 10 days, whatever we spend in, uh, in Northern Ireland. You get to watch that whole process of different people at different stages with the hope that maybe we can, through these stories, can help move more people towards where our tour guides are. Now, our tour guides might disagree on politics here and there, might you know, not see everything together, but the dialogue between them is always respectful, it's always, um, it's always thoughtful, and they love each other. And this is true, we do this in, in 20 countries around the world. And the main thing I often tell the tour guides, don't focus on the political, again, positions. Focus on the stories, your stories, the stories of people you fought with, the stories of people who are with you or not now, the stories of your family and how they're responding to this. The more you tell us the stories, the more people will connect to, to what's happening and will understand what led to your transformation. Um, so that's one aspect. Another place we use storytelling is um, I'm Your Protector, which is an organization I co-founded or co-directed. And we used stories of people in conflict areas who helped somebody from the enemy side. And conflict areas, I mean, in reality, that's all over the world. There are tensions and conflicts. So it's anything from... Uh, Jews who helped Muslims like in Bosnia uh, through, the, uh, through the, the conflict there, the Muslims who were being shelled by Serbia and a synagogue that opened its doors to its Muslim neighbors, uh, like Jacob Finzi, who was in the Jewish community, or Muslims who helped Jews through the Holocaust and risked their own lives to hide the people or to forge letters saying that they were Muslim, not Jewish, like in France, for example, the head of the Grand Mosque did that, knowing if he gets caught, he's dead. So we bring those kind of stories and try to present it to people and say, well, your assumption is these people are your enemies. Maybe you would consider if you see these people willing to die for who you today perceive as the enemy, that they want to kill us. You want to break that stereotype. And to break it, you have to bring something that is shocking, something that really challenged the whole core of your idea. I did it. Uh, we did it in Northern, uh, Northern Ireland, in Amsterdam with a refugee uh, 
with the strong anti-refugee sentiment. There was a Syrian guy who saw a guy, uh, a a Dutch man drowning in the winter in a canal and nobody was jumping in. People called the police, but by the time the police would come, this guy would be dead. And the Syrian refugee just jumped in a freezing water and saved this Dutch man. And you know, all the negative normally stories, refugees are coming, they're dangerous, they want to you know, they want to take our country. And then you see this guy doing the exact opposite. So we took this story and spread it as much as we could, not just in the Netherlands, but all over. Maybe this would help us rethink who are the refugees, telling a story that often media doesn't cover. So there are so many other examples I can tell you that the space where storytelling can challenge stereotypes, challenge our way of understanding the world, challenge how we perceive communication is just beyond uh, beyond what we can imagine. Mm. It makes me wonder that perhaps the wrong type of people can often be in the room leading some of these conflicts in the sense of uh, politicians being faced with these with these conundrums and the skill sets and backgrounds and situations and internal rah-rah that they have to sort of deal with within their own kind of political landscape. It kind of makes me feel like we've got the wrong people that are actually trying to kind of make sense of You're this right. moment, but, yeah, the ones that are actually causing and creating it and continuing to propagate it. 15 years ago, I had a meeting with somebody really, really, really high in the U.S. government, as high as possible, let's say, under the president. And he asked, what do you do? And I told him, oh, I work in conflict resolution. I kid you not. He looked at me and said, conflict resolution. This is a guy who was in charge of like negotiations and making deals and international (laughs) affairs. And he thought working in conflict resolution was a joke. And at that moment, I realized, oh, no wonder we have so many problems in in our governments and internationally. If people who are in charge think the concept of conflict resolution is a joke, is is something like conflict resolution, you idealist Mm. person, like, yeah, no wonder we are where we are. Uh, I think in my experience, and I've met quite a lot of politicians in my work, Often they do not they do not comprehend the work we talking about. They do not understand the importance of of communication, of the the essence of how you really connect, of how you make a change. And in reality, when you look at our investments in the world as governments, the U.S. government invests so much money in weapons. And even this week, the U.S. government wants to spend $100 billion on different conflicts around the world in weapons. How much money are they putting for peace? How much money are they putting for diplomacy? How much money are they willing to invest into doing the work we are talking about now? And the answer is almost nil. It's it's Mm -hmm. like less than they spend on one bomb. And then they have the, the audacity to make fun of the work we are doing that it's not effective. Well, maybe if we spend more on education, maybe if we spend more on cultural education and getting people to work together and joint investments and join uh, all of those things, maybe the world would be a little bit safer. 
I would argue since we've always tried the way of just investing in weapons, it's maybe time to try something different. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing that that seems to continue to sort of pepper its way through throughout history and in particular conflict, and I love your thoughts on this and the way story is interconnected with this, but is this kind of continual um, root in perhaps many conflicts, which is about occupation and taking taking something from someone else. Um, would you agree with that? There's a lot of that. I think my, my favorite probably explanation and theory goes to John Burton, who's another fathers of conflict resolution uh, field, where he said, there are needs that we all have. And if you take away those needs, it will raise conflict. And those needs, you know, there's levels of it, you know, first is the basic need, having food, having water, having a place to live. But eventually you go to other things, including positions, including identity, including freedom. And if you take away any of these needs of somebody else, you are going to end up in conflict. So occupation is definitely one of it, taking somebody's land, taking somebody's, uh, trying to fight somebody's identity. That is absolutely going to push you uh, into conflict. I would even argue if you don't have a strong identity, we all have many identities, let's say that. If I attack one of those identities, it will become your most prominent one. So if you are gay and Jewish and whatever, I can throw four or five identities and you see them all as more or less equal and I attack only one of them, that becomes the most prominent identity you have. And I saw it when when Trump won the elections in the US and he went with his Muslim ban kind of stuff. And suddenly my, my Muslim identity became up the roof because it, you know, he's attacking not just me in the in sense, he's attacking my whole family, he's attacking my, my community, he's atta- and so suddenly this identity gets heightened. So that's a case when you look at uh, indigenous communities, whether in Latin America and the United States, I'm sure you have your own issues in Australia. That is a big part of it is, you know, it's not occupation, the sense like Israel, Palestine or some other some other places, but it is takes away part of the identity and part of the pride of, of a community. That, that creates a conflict. And eventually, if we're not careful and are working and solving that, it, it always has the likelihood of going violent at some point. It might not happen today. It might not happen tomorrow. But if you ignore a conflict and assuming the status quo will survive forever, it never does. Things never stay as they are. They either improve or get worse. And in so many conflicts I've worked, politicians will often assume, well, if there's no violence now, there'll be never violence. I can ignore it. I've seen that in Syria. I've seen that in, in the Middle East all over. I've seen that even Israel and Palestine. This was the assumption before October 7th. And it just never stays as is. And we only pay attention when a huge eruption of violence happens. 
when often it becomes 10 times more complicated to solve the problem after violence because there's more anger, there's more emotions, there's a lot of people killed. And so you have to deal with something that it would have been just so much easier to do it in times of relative peace. Mm. So would you say that peacemaking and peace building always needs to be active? Uh, absolutely. I, I would argue you need it more when there is no violence than when there is violence. Because the moment violence breaks, it's it's really hard to get people to be irrational. We need to take advantage when things are quiet to do that. So that's one aspect. But the second, I would argue, peacemaking first shouldn't be left only for diplomats. If you leave it for diplomats alone, we are in trouble. We need to really think more about the role of citizen diplomats, that each one of us is actually a diplomat. Each one of us is a peacemaker. And we need to think, how do we bring peacemaking into every industry, into education, into all works we do? That's that's why I started Meiji Tours, because I wanted to bring peace into an industry that everyone likes. And because people love to travel, like, well, you can travel and you can have fun and you can do all of that. But can we also insert a little bit about peacemaking? And it's not, you know, it's not going to completely take over your trip because I understand people want to have fun, but it will be the, a thought within every activity almost we do, even if it's small, it, there's something there. Going and having lunch with a family of a community you've never heard of before, or you never uh, have communicated with, get a chance to ask questions that you would never have asked because you are too afraid to ask maybe those questions. Um, you know, all kind of stuff like this, hear from politicians, hear from journalists, hear from, you know, people. Um, that's really important that we think what other industries we can bring peacemaking into and not just think, oh, well, government does it. They won't. Mm, mm. And as I said, maybe they're the wrong people to be doing that kind of work anyway. Um, Aziz, I wanted to return back to your 2020 book, Crossing Boundaries, A Traveller's Guide to World Peace, which um, uh, struck me on lots of levels. One of them... Well, that's it for this free edition of the Storymakers Institute. If you'd like to hear the full episode, all you need to do is head to our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com and become a paid subscriber today.